welcome fellow traveller to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Hello, everybody. Hello, fellow travellers, and welcome to the end of the series around the idea of what it means to disagree. On behalf of Stephen and Chris and I and Natasha, we just want to say thank you for coming along and giving us this chance to bring to you what we feel isn't just a chance for us to kind of wax poetic about this topic, but in the spirit of giving you perspectives and giving you something to hold on to and learn from. Uh, you know, we can talk all day long, but bringing on guests like we have today with uh, Daniel Schroyer and Thomas J. Ward and giving them a chance to, to, to pour into you, in a sense, uh, what they've experienced relative to their, their theological journeys. And then not only that, but into the real world and how they can use it. We felt this was a good way to end this series. So thanks for coming along with us on this journey. And uh, let's, let's, we can kind of jump into it. As I just mentioned, uh, we're ending it with two, two familiar faces that, that I think you know, you've all heard of, even not just in our show, but in our, our theological world that we look to for these kinds of things and these kinds of answers. And as I was thinking about both of them, uh, as I was just telling them, uh, you know, here you have somebody like Danielle, who for me personally, uh, was one of those that, that she was the source, the origin that made me, uh, put me on a journey of looking at the original sin story in a different way. Uh, this is a fundamental building block for a lot of our Western, you know, evangelical, current Christianity thought of this is the crux of the whole story. And so when you bring a, a topic like that and you bring it well, the argument well, to to look at that in a different way, in, a, in a, what I think is actually a beautiful way, in an intended way, you're going to ruffle some feathers and people are going to say, you start messing with me, moving my cheese for those of you that get the reference of that old book. It's a popular business book about when you change the dynamics, it makes people uncomfortable and people tend to react all kinds of ways. And one of them is to disagree. And then we have Mr. Ord who, you know, <laughs> you know if you're going to challenge, that's one challenging, one fundamental aspect of the, of the, of our, our belief in the, in God and, those things. And then you have somebody else saying, oh, hey, by the way, let me add on to that. There's some things God can't do. And it's like, whoa, but all the songs and all the sayings and the whole premises, all, all things are possible if I, with God and God can do anything. What do you mean God can't? And where in the world is that even coming from? And it's, you know, so you have uh, two people who, and, and at the same time, not just saying those things for the sake of it to create some sort of polarizing chance to, to talk or to promote. Uh, you know, as I've listened to both of them cha- and challenging my own viewpoints on those things and saying, huh, they probably, you know, their, their ability to do that provides some validity to it, an opportunity to challenge and challenge well. And then that, I feel, stimulates that growth that I think is a, such a, a paramount part of our journey as just humans and especially from a theological standpoint what we believe. So, all that said... Uh, Danielle Thomas, uh, thank you so much for coming to the tent and having a conversation with us. Danielle, I kind of want to start with you because um, it's, you know, the, the Genesis narrative, the, you know, where to start. You know, when you come across things like, uh, and not just maybe in that particular, don't want to pigeonhole you there, but just disagreeing in general, you know, kind of where do you, where do you come down on that, co- that topic? What, what, what motivates you to stay true to what you think while in the face of uh, somebody telling you that you might be wrong? So I spend my time as a spiritual director now and was a longtime pastor as well. And um, I think what, what feels important to remember when someone comes at you 
is that something feels that it needs defending. And so then the question is, okay, how can I get curious about what feels under attack from this person? Not that I never try to attack, but hopefully on my, on the majority of my days, I don't like come at someone's throat trying to like tear down their belief system. Right. But, you know, I also am here to say things that I think are true about God. And some of those are maybe a little bit unconventional. Yeah. People are going to have strong reactions to that, but I always start by thinking, you know, the fact that they're disagreeing with me means that they care about God, that they have a faith that feels worth defending. And that's actually really valuable and actually also more than valuable. It's sacred. So I don't want to do anything to belittle that person because it just shows that it matters. And so then, you know, for me, it's about what feels like it's at stake with you here. And that's where I think the conversation can get fruitful. I think the hard thing for us in sort of our current climate in in America is that it's really not about ideas that we're disagreeing. We're not even disagreeing. We're just reacting to each other. You know, it's like disagreement is actually a goal. Like if we were all just walking around disagreeing, I feel like that would be a step in the right direction. Um, But we're actually just going around being triggered by each other and reacting and living in this sort of emotional reactive state that never creates anything productive. I think just to name that and say that's a really immature way of living human life. We all do it, but when we do that, we need to at least be, you know, own up to our humanity enough to say, you know, this is like not the place from which good things will come when we just lose our minds over the fact that someone comes at something, right? So, I think it's it's really about moving from reactivity to listening. And that means not only listening to the person that you're across from in that conversation, but also listening to like what's going on within yourself to say, wow, you know, that really pushed my button. What's that about for me? You know, and again, it's about that getting curious and saying, how can we move this toward a space that will be a little more generative in conversation? Because if we just yell at each other, it feels gross. And it certainly doesn't feel good for someone to say, you don't know what you're talking about. The Bible says this in Romans. And so your whole book is stupid, you know, which I did get a couple of those emails. And I thought, I mean, I guess I need to get upset about that. But also like, on some level, it's just not true. You know, I actually worked really hard to know what I was talking about. And certainly there's infinite amounts of people that know more than I do, but I don't know nothing. And so I think if you kind of cultivate a sense of self where you say, I'm not going to get knocked off by um, this reactive thing coming at me that doesn't even have merit to it. I think, you know, you just let those go by the wayside and then you can say, well, okay, when a piece of criticism comes around on Amazon about a book that you wrote or something, you have to say, is there anything in, you know, can you actually receive the criticism and say, is there something in there that I need to know and to be humble first? And I think that takes a position also of not being reactive to just say, sure, that might've hurt my feelings, but were they right? You know, and maybe I should write better next time. Maybe I am not that great of a writer or whatever, you know, and maybe that argument was straw man and I should think of doing better next time. So I think it's also a willingness um, and a maturity in us to, to be open to receiving criticism. All right, Mr. Ward for an encore. How would say you, do you agree or disagree? <laughs> well, I really, I, <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> um, I agree with everything Danielle said. Uh, I was thinking about exchanges I've had on social media or in person when someone reads something I've written or hears something I said and they come at me 
you know, in disagreement. Oftentimes there's a strong emotional element, which Danielle was pointing to. And we all have emotions. I'm not trying to say I'm like the objective emotionless person who's just, you know, Spock or something like that. We all got emotions. But one of the things I try to do in my first response to someone who disagrees with me is to acknowledge the emotional issues at stake. I might say, yeah, I know these ideas are really tough, aren't they? Or I might say, when I first heard this idea or thought of this idea, I also had a really strong negative reaction. And that it doesn't always, you know, do the trick, but oftentimes it disarms people because they recognize that you empathize with them. You, you, you've been in their shoes at least partly <laughs> in the past, and uh, you have some idea of what they're feeling. And then I often try to probe to see, to clarify what their real issue is, to try to get them to articulate their objection, their disagreement in a way that I can understand so that I can sort of uh, parrot it back to them. And I find in that exercise, often people don't really know how to articulate what they disagree with. They just know they don't like whatever I said or wrote. <laughs> and uh, so in that case, you know, my probing helps me to understand where they might be at or where, where they're still searching for and maybe helps them to realize they haven't quite got their head around what they object to. Occasionally, occasionally it sounds like it's rare, some people do have a pretty good idea, clear idea of what they disagree with. And at the end of the day, we might just have to agree to disagree. Um, but I think that's at least for me a helpful way to start a response to someone who disagrees with me. Yeah, what I think I like most about that from a pragmatic standpoint is Again, we're, to Danielle's point, we're not sitting around trying to become this winner and me over you. And it's really trying to understand first the emotions that we're going through initially and that we are, even even if we're not even sure what it is, we're just holding on to this premise of what you say, you say God can't, or you say that it's an original blessing versus an original sin story. And even if they haven't fully vetted out that theory or that idea, or even understand why they like it, giving them the, the space, in a sense, to do that. Because I, I think about... We've had this conversation a couple times on the on the pod around just kind of kind of, kind of narrow the issues. You look at somebody who's a QAnon follower or super super fundamental in their in their in their beliefs. We tend to think that they're we we almost become dismissive and that's crazy. And it's like well that QAnon person's tr their their mindset is they're trying to protect children. It's not that they don't like LGBT community. It's not that they don't like women. They don't. They're just trying to protect this idea. Uh, and and so I want to kind of expand upon. As, as these people defend that, even if they're not fully immersed into the understanding of why it is that they feel that way, rarely is it something that they feel is bad, that their intentions aren't bad. And definitely we start, and I start thinking about, I know one of the big words that Stephen always brings up is things that are evil or there's an evil incident. When do y'all think it goes from, we're just disagreeing to then, how do we identify when it's negative, like beyond just basic disagreement, but that that person, there's something else going on there. Because I struggle with this idea of evil, just to be frank, because I think it's thrown out really, really easily. And it's, and it's, and I think because I think it's a, it's an easy dismissive way to kind of justify that discomfort even. Oh, that's, that's, that's of the devil. That's, you know, that's, and even simple things, little things, that's, instead of just trying to really understand it. So, I mean, where, where do you come down in terms of, Daniel, start back with you, I'd love to, is, when does it go from just, oh, friendly disagreement, and maybe you're just different to, 
no, there's something else going on here. Is that even a thing? Yeah, I, I think the first thing that that makes me think of is that to really, again, have a disagreement is, is a different thing than we were mostly seeing in our, uh, in our discourse because there are ground rules, you know? You have to, in some way, respect the other person enough to listen. You have to, you know, not shout over them as they're trying to make their point. There are some basic rules of, of, of engagement that both parties have to be willing to enter into for, for there to be a sense of healthy disagreement. Like, okay, well, I understand that you're concerned about this at the border, but can you see how I, I think that, you know, this is an inhumane way to handle that issue, you know? Yes, I can see that, that, but you know, you you understand we have to do something, right? Like you can maybe disagree and and still have some things in common. I think when it gets really dicey is when that shared value system is not present. You know, I'm immediately seen as evil, right? I'm going straight to hell, and so therefore I'm not allowed to be listened to. Well, there's not really any way to have a good conversation in that because they've already decided that I'm not worth listening to. So I'm, I'm not a person anymore, right? I'm not a conversation partner. Um, and in the same way, I think when we fully write off other people and say, well, they're crazy, they don't, you know, well, that's, again, that's not honoring the, the image of God within that person, even if we think that they're not living from it in a way that seems part, particularly noticeable, right? Like I can definitely say, well, I think you know, that, the values by which you're living is not really what I would agree with, but I'm not, I'm not going to do the line for me is I'm not going to do anything to take away the inherent dignity of another person. And I think if you're in conversation with someone who doesn't mind doing that, it's just, we've already lost, we've already lost the possibility of a good conversation. Yeah, I agree with that. I try to avoid two extremes and, and I don't want to claim that I perfectly avoid these two extremes, but one extreme looks at everybody who disagrees with me as inherently evil, what Danielle was talking about. But there's another extreme that says, you know, everybody, they're all good. They're all, they all got their perspective. No perspective is any better than the others, you know, just live and let live. And I don't buy that either. If someone tells me, comes to me and says, I really believe that adults ought to be having sex with children, I'm going to not only disagree with them, but I'm going to do what I can to make sure my grandchildren aren't around that person. So there's going to be certain consequences and implications for the kind of claims we make. So if I can avoid demonizing someone, but also just not having a, hey, whatever goes is fine with me sort of perspective, then I'm trying to steer some kind of middle way between those two. I find in doing that, I can, in some cases, make real progress in understanding another person who disagrees with me. In other cases, I can't. When I was younger, I thought I was supposed to save everybody, save the whole world. And if anyone disagrees with them, if I could just talk long enough, I could convince them of the truth and I could be the Messiah to save them. As I've gotten older, I've realized it's just not the case. And there are some people that I just am not going to get through to, and I've learned to live with that. So in the spirit of what it means to disagree and how you do that, you know, physically, we have the ability to stay balanced using muscles and staying. That's how we learned how to walk and ride a bike and you know these kinds of things. And so there's a physical effort we put forward to kind of stay in that in that balance. Like you were saying, Thomas, you're trying you know trying not to go to the too far to the extremes because either way it's too far, it's too much or or not enough depending on how you want to look at it. 
but from as we discussed, you know, we're emotive creatures. You know, that that balance can go off the rails, and you can be sitting somewhere, sitting at a at a keyboard, and become emotionally distraught just off of a comment. But when these things happen in your challenge, not just maybe on these the core elements, but just in general around theology or just as people, what is it that inspires you? What is it that draws you, um, that you draw from to give you that that ability to stay in that center? You know, Daniel, we'll start with you. I mean, I think all, all good spiritual practices do that, right? They move us past our own reactivity. You're listening to this podcast and you think, boy, I think I react all the time. Well, okay, maybe add some silence into your life, you know, spend some time in centering care. And you'll actually find shockingly that, you know, you just, you can handle things in a different way than you could before you added that silence in. I think that all good uh, spiritual practices give us some spaciousness within ourselves that we don't feel that need to defend ourselves so much. Like, you know, even in meditation, if you do it in a very secular way, you start to realize that you're just watching your thoughts and there's just like no big, it's like, okay, you know, you can just let it go by and not make it a whole big thing. And even that sense of, you know, trying to observe the self, not as if you're not, you know, completely connected to it, but just knowing that you don't have to say yes. Every time that train ticket gets offered to you, that you're going to go, you know, you're going to go with the anger. You're going to go with the outrage or whatever. You don't have to go with it. The it, Like a muscle, you have to practice that um, with meditation and prayer and all other forms of, of contemplation so that you you practice that non-reactiveness. You know, this is why, why chaplains are so great. Chaplains can walk into a hospital room. They don't know what to get into and somebody could be in grief or somebody could be in anger or somebody could be flying off the handle of the nurse and the chaplain can walk in and have what we call a non-anxious presence, right? Um, they can go in and just be with what's happening and try and find a way forward for people to just, you know, as Thomas said, you can sort of disarm the situation. Yeah, I think that that's really, really valuable. Because I think most of us, you know, we probably both are familiar with Richard Beck's work. And he's talked a lot about sort of the yuck factor being the thing that guides us around, you know, and we have to grow up, right? Like we can't just say, well, I don't like that because I think it's gross. And therefore that's my entire argument. And you're like, well, that's not enough. You know what I mean? You can't just say you think something's gross or you have a reaction to it that you just, well, you don't like Thomas's ideas because you want God to be totally in control. Well, you know, get over it. Like maybe just have a conversation where you think maybe it's okay for you to say that your yuck factor is not the only, it's, that's not an academic argument. You know what I mean? This is not like a premise that you have. It's just a feeling. And so for us to just examine our own lives and realize when those things happen, that there's got to be something deeper that we can pull from. We have more than that. You know, we don't just have our reactions. There's way more than that. And, and to Thomas's point, just to encourage people to, to inquire well, why do I think that? What does that mean for me? And, and um, they don't always know in the moment, but just asking the question opens that up again for that sense of self-reflection and centeredness that I think will, will help the world be a more peaceful place. I like that yuck factor line. Um, that's something that in my conversation with people on LGBTQ plus issues that I often think that people who I would call non-affirming, I often think the yuck factor plays a really big part of 
of how they react. Now, I don't want to say everybody is that way, but a, a large number of people, I think it goes much deeper than any claims about what the Bible says about homosexuality or what uh, the natural law is related to queer people or whatever. I think a lot of it is uh, what that yuck factor that people are just kind of grossed out when they think about same-sex sexual activity. But to answer your question, Sean, about uh, what sorts of things, how, I can't remember exactly how you asked the question, but what do you look to to respond to people disagreement? Two things come to my mind. One is what in philosophy we call epistemic humility, which in every language is just saying, you know, we don't know everything <laughs> and we shouldn't go around pretending like we do. So to have this humility coming into the conversation uh, helps me. I, I'd like to say I'm always humble, but it's not the case. But I, I aim to be humble when I have a disagreement with someone. And secondly, I think there's value in listening to other people who are close to the situation. Let me illustrate this with something in my own life. I have a close family member who's an ardent Donald Trump supporter. And over the years, I've had lots of conversations with this person, trying to reason with this person, trying to lay things out. And eventually, my family member said, we don't really even want to be around this person anymore. This person is too abrasive. And it was very clear that my arguments were not making any difference in our disagreements. And so I listened to my family in this case. I didn't write them out and, you know, this person out of the family. I didn't, you know, say they were going to hell or whatever. But I did say to myself, maybe this is something I need to disengage and listen to the wisdom of other people who are, are part of the conversation, at least on the periphery, and seeing what's going on. Hmm. No, that's not. For me, from an anecdotal standpoint, you know, both of y'all's comments stirred me a bit around some of my personal experiences. One is the yuck factors you were talking about, Danielle, and I know that's more, more Richards and, you know, hi, Richard, if you happen to be listening, he's, he's a great source for the show and somebody to listen to for sure. That, you know, I've, I've been to China on business trips many times. I've been overseas and just something as simple as the food you eat. You know, you can, I tell people about what they eat in China and yuck is all caps, with some apostrophes and it's just, you know, they just can't fathom uh, that this is how people eat over there. And then I was pointing out to my youngest uh, that, that he, right next door to China is India and over there, not a lot of people eat beef, not only that, but to the, this is well over a billion more people than we have. It's, it's almost inconceivable that you would eat a cow and yet, you know, we're from Texas, we're from the South. I know you you like your meat up there where you're at in, in Idaho as well, Thomas. And so that that seems almost is the exact opposite of yuck. And what I liked most about that context and in tying into what you said, Danielle, was silence. And so I don't think I've announced on this show, but I'm going back to school to become a, a licensed professional counselor. I'm going through uh, that training right now, formerly at Lamar University, get my master's. And one of the things we were coming across was this idea, um, this practice, if you will, of being silent in those moments with somebody. And if you haven't figured out by now, I have no problem talking. Uh, silence happens usually when I'm sleeping um, in, in terms of that. But I have to tell you that making an effort to, to do that, not only have I seen bore fruit, but I can give you an exact uh, example. And maybe people can parallel that in their lives when they're up against somebody like, like you're talking about, Thomas. A friend of mine died of cancer back in March. She was 41, fought for three years. Uh, her husband was my roommate before. We were super tight, known him for decades. 
uh, left behind three boys under the age of eight. And it was the Sunday right after she passed. And I went over to my friend's house and I had lots of things I wanted to say. You talk about being a chaplain. You talk about being a spiritual, like I'm a type A, want to come in and save the world. I've done some chaplaincy training. And the first thing they tell you is you can't. And the first thing they tell you in therapy, you, as much as, oh, therapists are going to help me. We can't. And that's not really what we do. Uh, and so you have to be signed. And so I went to my friend's house and this is real time. This is like not, it's not theory. It's not some mock, mock training session. My, my friend's wife, after many years, had, had just died. And I found myself just like arguing myself, saying, you've got to shut up and you cannot talk when you get in there. And so typical, walked in there, how you doing, as we ask, even though we know we're not doing okay. Uh, and he kept saying, was, you know, I'm doing good and blah, blah, blah. And I just, I literally made it a point and didn't say anything. It probably took 13 or 14 actual minutes, which if you're silent, back to the meditation practice, as you know, that, that, that's forever. And we just were in his living room. Luckily, his boys were gone. They happened to be with their mother-in-law, his, mo- his mother-in-law. And um, and then when he opened, when that silence broke, I mean, there's no way that anything I could have said to him before that would have said would have would have precluded him his ability to engage. And this is a friend friend of mine. Like we weren't strangers, so he was comfortable. But even then, for somebody I was close to, it took a while. But when that silence broke, I mean, it was. That was powerful after that and what it did for him as much as for myself. And so that's kind of what it makes me think about with you, Danielle, is because we hear these things and we sometimes think they're placating. Oh, just meditate on it or, you know, just be the bigger person. Don't say anything. And it's, there's some truth to that. I mean, there's some real, real truth to that. And then it made me think, and I'd love to be to, to jump a little bit more into this, Thomas, just because you didn't ask what I will. Uh, he just sent out a, a recent email with his photography where he spends an incredible amount of time walking in the isolated areas as if there's another kind up in his neck of the woods in Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, taking just these like Ansel Adam-esque, and I mean that sincerely, wonderful professional pictures that have to take forever up there to kind of like just sit in those moments and sit in that silence. And so I kind of like to take all that and then tie that into when you are in the, when you're in those moments, Thomas, and as you are being silent, how do you balance, and I'd like to come back to the end of this question with, with you, Danielle, that you want almost to create noise or you want to not, I don't want to say like get away from it, but how do you stay in that silence and letting that sit and letting those and waiting and waiting for that moment to actually be right? What kind of helps you in that moment relative to photography and how do you tie that into your, your everyday life? Yeah, when I'm out in the wilderness photographing, I'm looking for opportunities to make something that speaks to me, that captures a feeling, captures uh, a setting, portrays my environment, portrays my emotional state, etc. I wouldn't say I do a lot of waiting in the sense of going to somewhere and just waiting to see what happens. I'm more of a, I'm going to walk and I'm going to find something kind of a photographer. (laughs) So, uh, but I think it still fits into what you're doing, what you're talking about, because that walking and that searching is a time in which I do lots of reflection. And (laughs) this, I don't know, maybe this will make me sound less than spiritual or something, but a lot of the time when I'm walking and looking at my environment, I am 
to quote a song from my youth, I'm writing letters in my head of all the things I should have said. <laughs> in other words, I'm replaying conversations and, and then, you know, thinking about future conversations related to, uh, you know, uh, disagreements I might have or things that people are doing to me that I don't like. And that's actually, I think, really helpful because a lot of the material that I run through in my head when I'm out making photographs and looking at nature becomes ways for me to cope with disagreement, troubles, trials, etc. And even provide some language sometimes for how I respond in the future. So I don't know if that's quite the answer you're looking for, Sean, but that's what actually is happening. No, it's it's brilliant. And so I want to use that a little bit to preface, Daniel, because I know you mentioned meditation. I was one of those things. And I've also, in, to build on that, have, have, have had that idea of meditation kind of challenged around our typical thought is go somewhere and be silent, close your eyes, sit in the corner Indian style, don't make a move. And people can't do that. And then I've, I've, come across lately where people are talking about more of this kind of active, you can be walking, you can look and you can also be active, but it's more, more mindset, more perspectives. Can you help explain that idea a little bit better than I just did? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think we have to start somewhere. And I think um, if you, if you decide you're going to start by, you know, being the same as a Buddhist monk that's been doing it for 20 years, that's a, that's a sure sign of failure, you know, like, good luck. I can do it. And I've been doing that for seven or eight years now. Right. And we're, we're just surrounded by noise all the time. So, you know, the idea of going up into the woods and taking photos and just giving your, yourself space to reflect on your life, we don't even do that, you know? So that is incredibly fruitful. I walk my dogs every single morning, um, a mile or so. And it's, you know, it's half an hour. And I, I try in the mornings um, not to bring music to me nor a podcast. I just, I just walk. And same thing, it's like, what am I thinking of today? What am I? It's not, it's active meditation, right? It's like, I'm, tr I try to pay attention to my breath. I try to notice smells. I try to be really present. Um, so there's some sense of awareness that I'm cultivating when I'm doing that, but I'm not sitting and, you know, doing that whole thing. But, but by doing that, you actually do create some capacity to be able to sit. I do. I will say I was trained to meditate by Tibetan Buddhists and they meditate with their eyes open. And maybe it's because they're my teachers, but I just think this is a brilliant idea because it really helps you learn how to practice being in the world. That's, that's their argument is that the posture you take in meditation is about how to be sane in the world. And so you sit and you have your back straight because you're, you're confident, you have dignity, right? You're, you're, you're receiving your dignity. You have a soft front because you want to, you want to face the world with compassion and open heart. You breathe because you want to be present at what's happening, but you keep your eyes open at a soft gaze because you don't want to shut out the world and you don't need to be in some pretty place for this to happen. If there's like sirens going or whatever, that's just all part of the meditation. It's part of learning how to be in the world. And I think even if you don't do it in that traditional Tibetan Buddhist practice, it's a really good idea, right? This is like what we're going for because it allows us to have that space. And what I love about that is it, as I'm sitting listening to you again, I'm like, yeah, it just, it seems to make much more sense because then the, then the, the paradox is if you have to be alone, silent over there, 
and then you try to bring that into the world. That's exactly what it is. It, it, it just doesn't merge. And then that over there isn't even worth it because you're like, then you're yeah, the opposite. Your thoughts are racing and people are like, well, I'm not doing it right. I'll never be a Tibetan Buddhist master. And then you find out that they're like, yeah, we're not special either. We're, we're just more pragmatic about it. And then to me, this becomes ties really into what I feel hopefully uh, those are listening out there are getting is real pragmatic opportunities to kind of challenge what we think around these things. It could be actually fruitful as to why they're doing it to begin with instead of just being cool or, or some sort of like, you know, you know, some Spotify thing or some video or something somewhere that, you know, sounds like this over there idea, but no. And then, then when you run into that person who doesn't like what you're saying, who says God can, and you can't tell me can't. And what do you do about this? It's the fall from grace. It's not as a shock and not as much of a shock. And you have a little bit more to go off of to do that. And so, and so in the spirit of that thing is where I'd like to wrap this up and give each you one kind of like one last chance to kind of say in general, as our, as those are listening, this all sounds good right now, but we're getting ready to head into some certainty, especially, uh, and this isn't to be egocentric, what happens in the, in the United States specifically, and even the West is a dominant, dominant thing out there, whether we like it or not. It makes me think of Brian's on and you can try to get away from it, but what happens in the U.S. happens all over. We're, we're going, not just us, it's becoming more of a geopolitical world. So who's going to be the next president? Who's running for this? What's, who said that? You know, our, our viewpoints on gender, sexuality, religion matter and the world's listening. Uh, so as you come into this, what what topic do you see coming up on the political horizon to kind of be specific? Do you think is a hot button one that maybe might be worth looking at in a different perspective in terms of how you are able to disagree with it? And Daniel, we'll start with with you real quick off the cuff. <laughs> yeah, gosh, that's a that's a good question. I mean, it may be I may be thinking of this one just because I'm a woman, but I think abortion is probably one of the ones that's driving people to the polls. Right, a lot of women are mad. Um, and rightfully so, uh, that's something that's been such a staple of our of our ability to ponder our own lives and make decisions that we find to be wise or necessary has been taken from us because of people's yuck factor reaction to what they think may or may not be happening in our bellies. Um, so yeah, you know, the 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 concept of saying, even if you don't feel okay with it for you, can you consider listening? You know, as we said, and as Thomas has said, like, can you hear people who maybe have this experience and listen to people's stories and realize that you don't actually know every single thing that that means? You know, is it possible to talk to uh, people that have that have gone through this and may see it differently than you and and acknowledge that they have the right to have their own story. Um, and I think when we do that, as it relates to abortion or immigration or, you know, guns, really, like you talk to people who have had people die at the hand of of gun violence, um, ask them what they think about that. You know, as somebody who lives in Texas and everybody feels like they've got to just like pack heat to go to the Walmart, it's the weirdest thing. Like, what's going to happen? Um, but also being a kid from West Texas, who some people had to have guns in their cars because they had coyotes when they went out to check on their on their ranch. Right. So like understanding that there is nuance. And again, that epistemic humility that we don't actually know all of it. We don't. It's most most of these issues are so complex that there's no one right answer to any of them. And so to be able to just say, well, here's how I feel about it. But I have to admit that, you know, I haven't crossed the border because of war or famine or threat in my own country. So I actually don't know what I would do in that situation. Or I don't know, I've never been pregnant when I didn't want to and had to really decide what that was gonna look like for my life under all these very unique circumstances, right? 
just to say, I just don't know. Um, one of the well-known Buddhist uh, teachers is Pema Chodron. And one of her very well-known phrases is um, to be uncomfortable with uncertainty, to be comfortable with uncertainty, that that's the practice. And again, that's going back to the meditation is what you do when you're sitting is you realize I'm bad at this. There's weird stuff going through my head and you just get comfortable with the uncertainty and like not greatness of all of it. You just are like, it's fine, you know? And I think the more that we cultivate that, even as we look at all these hot button issues, um, we have to be comfortable with the uncertainty. We're never going to know the whole answer, you know? That's maybe okay. Yeah, I think for me, the hot button issue that's at the fore of my mind is the LGBTQ plus stuff, the trans legislation in Florida and the way uh, people have differing views on the authenticity of the gay lesbian experience, the queer experience in general. Um, this is not only a huge issue nationally in the United States, but around the world. And in the own my own little Church of the Nazarene denomination that I'm part of, uh, my daughter and I co-edited a book of 90 essays that came out this spring uh, saying that my denomination, the Church of the Nazarene, ought to change its views to become fully affirming. And you can imagine the firestorm that I've been living through the last several months related to that. And in some of those conversations, I've engaged people who claim that the, re quote, rehabilitation or recovery approach to uh, gay and lesbian identity and orientation has been helpful to them. Now, I know the statistics is that the vast majority of people is not helpful for, her. but there's some people who say, I went through that program and now I came out straight. And um, I've learned in conversations with those people with whom I disagree with to be open to the possibility that maybe there are exceptions to what the majority <laughs> experience is like. Maybe the vast majority of people don't recover, quote, recover, quote, rehabilitate, but maybe a few do. And I can acknowledge the truth of that while still seeking change, still seeking to advocate for the majority who don't need to see their uh, identities, orientations uh, change in that, in that regard. So that's the issue that's at the fore of my mind. Oh, it's a great way to end it. I mean, definitely love the humility on that. And I just want to say from a personal note for both of you, thank you so much. And I want to tell the listeners out there, one of the beautiful things about the podcasting world that I've got to experience over the last six years is becoming friends, friendly with people like Stephen, uh, who I listened to our podcast first and then reached out to and had him on mine years ago. And then we did this. And I got to have dinner with Thomas back in July when my family was in Jackson Hole and and got a chance to you know see somebody in real life, not just a voice, not just a person that you hear walking on when you're walking. When I was walking my dog and could never seem to get away from podcasts and music, and it was and hearing him or, or Danielle, who I haven't got to meet in person yet, who's just up the road in Dallas from Houston where I am, and that's on this one of the beautiful things about this journey. And I just want to say thank you to the listener for making it possible is to create not just not just a place to get information and some great perspective, but people that you that you make your lives better and enrich what you're doing. So thank you for, for coming on and sharing uh, what I thought was great. And keep in mind, we just went off the cuff with this and that's what I love most about this kind of stuff too because I couldn't have written that down to, to have been any better. So thank you uh, from me to you, for both of you for taking the time to do this. And we're all grateful to you for all the work you've put into this podcast over the years. And you know, thank you for what you've done for all the listeners. More than welcome, more than welcome.
All right. Well, with that, y'all, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, and you may not agree with us ending this, and you may not agree with all that stuff, but I can think that we have some tools to use to get out there and take it forward. And, and all joking aside, as we go into this time of uncertainty, as Danielle was saying, uh, and not sure if who's going to get elected to what, and even what legislation is going to be passed, and how that's going to have not just effects in the, in the in the short term, but could for years, many, many years. Being being comfortable with that un, uncertainty may be uh, the place to start. And I think there's some wisdom in that. All right, y'all. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com. 